This is Holden Karnofsky doing an amateur read-through of my blog post, Useful Vices for Wicked Problems. I've claimed that the best way to learn is by writing about important topics. I link to a past post on that. Examples I've worked on include which charity to donate to, whether life has gotten better over time, whether civilization is declining, and whether AI could make this the most important century of all time for humanity. But I've also said that this kind of work can be hard, taxing, exhausting, and a bit of mental health gauntlet. Because when trying to write about these sorts of topics, I often find myself needing to constantly revise my goals, and there's no clear way to know whether I'm making progress. That is, trying to write about a topic that I'm learning about is generally what's called a wicked problem. I constantly find myself in situations like, I was trying to write up why I think X, but now I realize that X isn't quite right, and now I don't know what to write. And I either have to write something obvious and useless or look into a million more things to write something interesting. And I'm a week past my self-imposed deadline, and it feels like I have a week to go, but maybe it's actually 12 weeks. That's what happened last time. Overall, this is the kind of work where I can't seem to tell how progress is going or stay on a schedule. For context on the kind of work I'm talking about, it's worth reading or re-skimming The Wicked Problem Experience, past post. The central example of that piece is Early Givewell, trying to identify and write up the answer to the vaguely defined question of which charity can I give to in order to do as much good as possible, armed with only a very limited set of data about a tiny subset of the world's charities. This post goes through some tips I've collected over the years for dealing with these sorts of challenges, both working on them myself and working with teammates and seeing what works for them. A lot of what matters for doing this sort of work is coming at it with open-mindedness, self-criticality, attention to detail, and other virtues. But a running theme of this work is that it can be deadly to approach with too much virtue, holding oneself to self-imposed deadlines, trying for too much rigor on every subtopic, and otherwise trying to do everything right as planned and on time can drive a person crazy. So this post is focused on a less obvious aspect of what helps with wicked problems, which is useful vices, antidotes to the kind of thoroughness and conscientiousness that lead to unreachable standards and make wicked problems impossible. I've organized my tips under the following vices, borrowing from Larry Wall and extending his framework a bit. The first vice is laziness. When some key question is hard to resolve, often the best move is to just not resolve it and change the thesis of your write-up instead and change how rigorous you're trying to make it. For example, switching from these are the best charities to these are the charities that are best by the following imperfect criteria. The next vice is impatience. One of the most crucial tools for this sort of work is interrupting oneself. I could be reading through study after study on some charitable activity, like building wells, when stepping back to ask, wait, why does this matter for the larger goal again, could be what I most need to do. The next vice is hubris. Whatever I was originally arguing, like Charity X is the best, I'm probably going to realize at some point that I can't actually fully defend it. This can be demoralizing, even crisis-inducing. I recommend trying to build an unshakable conviction that one has something useful to say, even when one has completely lost track of what that something might be. And the final vice is self-preservation. When you're falling behind, it can be tempting to make a heroic effort at superhuman productivity. When a problem seems impossible, it can be tempting to fix your steely gaze on it and do it anyway. I recommend the opposite. Instead of rising to the challenge, shrink from it and fight another day when you'll solve some problem other than the one you thought you were going for. 
Overall, it's tempting to try to boil the ocean and thoroughly examine every aspect of a topic of interest, but the world is too big and the amount of information is too much. I think the only way to form a view on an important topic is to do a whole lot of simplifying, approximating, and skipping steps, aiming for a step of progress rather than a confident resolution. Next section, laziness. Subsection, hypothesis rearticulation. A previous piece that I linked to focused on hypothesis rearticulation. Instead of defending what I was originally going to argue, I just change what I'm arguing so it's easier to defend. For example, when asking, has life gotten better, I could have knocked myself out trying to pin down exactly how quality of life changed in each different part of the world between, say, the year zero and the year 1000. Instead, I focused on saying that time period is a mystery and focused on arguing for why we shouldn't be confident in any of a few tempting narratives. My previous piece has another example of this move. It's one of the most important moves for answering big questions. Next subsection, questions for further investigation. This is another aspect of laziness. This is really one of my favorites. Every GiveWell report used to have a big section at the bottom called questions for further investigation. We'd be working on some question like, what about the possibility that paying for these services, e.g. bed nets, just causes the government to invest less in them? And I'd be like, would you rather spend another 100 hours on this question? Or write down a few sentences about what our best guess is right now, add it to the questions for further investigation section, and move on. To be clear, sometimes the answer was the former, the 100 hours, and I think we eventually did get to just about all of those questions over the course of years. But still, it's remarkable how often this simple move can save one's project and create another fun project for someone else to work on. One of the weak points of the Forecasting Transformative AI with Biological Anchors analysis by Jay Kotra that I linked to is that it just didn't put much effort into forecasting changes in the cost of AI hardware over the coming decades. Instead, it fit a pretty simple curve to past data. Since then, though, there have been multiple pieces on this topic done by others. I think keeping it simple and leaving it as an open question was the right call. Next subsection of laziness. What standard are we trying to reach? How about the easiest one that would still be worth reaching? If you're writing an academic paper, you probably have a sense of what counts as enough evidence or enough argumentation that you've met the standards for a successful paper. But here I'm trying to answer some broad question, like where should I donate or is civilization declining that doesn't fit into an established field? And for such a broad question, I'm going to run into a huge number of sub-questions, each of which could be the subject of many papers of its own. It's tempting to try for some standard, like every claim I make is supported by a recognizably rigorous conclusive analysis, but that way, madness lies. I think it's often better to aim for the minimum level of rigor that would still make something the best available answer to the question. But I'm not absolutist about that either. A frustrating aspect of working with me on problems like this is that I'll frequently say things like, well, we don't need to thoroughly answer objection X, but we should do it if it's pretty quick to do so. That just seems like a good deal. I think this is a fine way to approach things, but it leads to shifting standards. Here's a slightly more nuanced way to think about how rigorous a piece is when there's no clear standard to meet. I tend to ask, how hard would it be for a critic to demonstrate that the write-up's conclusion is significantly off in a particular direction, and or far less robust than the writer has claimed. When asking how hard it would be for a critic, you can answer it with something like, what I call A-hardness is the minimum hours needed by literally anyone in the world to show that a conclusion is wildly off, B-hardness would be the minimum hours needed by any not super hard to access person, including someone who's very informed about the topic in question, and the C-hardness 
would be the minimum hours needed by a reasonably smart but not very informed critic looking on their own for flaws. Now, I seem to recall that with GiveWell, we got a lot more successful in terms of donor retention and things like that once we got to the point where we could get through an hour-long Q&A with donors with a satisfying response to each question, a response that demonstrated that we had thought about the question more and or harder than the person asking it, we had good reason to think it would take us significant time, like 10 to 100 hours or more, to get a better answer than we had, and at this point, I think the C hardness was at least 10 hours or so. That means a smart but not very informed person would take 10 hours to find a major flaw. That's no small achievement, because lots of not very informed people know something about some random angle. Of course, by now, I guess that GiveWell's A hardness is over 100 hours, meaning it would take just about anyone more than 100 hours to find a major flaw. But a C hardness of 10 hours was the first thing to aim for. These standards are very different from something like each claim is proven with X amount of confidence. I think these different standards are appropriate when you keep in mind that the goal is the most thoughtful take available on a key action guiding question. Next subsection, impatience. Many people dream of working on a project that puts them in a flow state. Quote from Wikipedia, in positive psychology, a flow state, also known as being in the zone, is the mental state in which a person performing some activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by the complete absorption in what one does and a resulting transformation in one's sense of time." End quote. But if you're working on wicked problems, I recommend that you avoid flow states, nice though they may be, thanks to Ajay Akotra for this point. Maybe you instead want what could be called a Harrison-Bergeron state, which is that every time you're getting in a groove, you get jolted out of it, completely lose track of what you were doing, and have to reassemble your thoughts. That's because one of the most productive things you can do when working on a wicked problem is to rethink what you're trying to do. The more you interrupt yourself, and the less attached you are to the plan you had, the more times you'll be able to notice that what you're writing isn't coming out as planned and you should change course. Next subsection, check-ins and virtual check-ins. I think the ideal way to interrupt yourself is to be working with someone else who's engaged in your topic and has experience with similar sorts of work. At Open Philanthropy, this might mean your manager, and constantly ping them to say things like, I've started to argue for point X, but I don't think my arguments are that great. What do I do? Or I'm thinking I should deeply investigate point Y. Does that sound right? Or I'm feeling dread about this next section, and I don't really have any idea why. Any thoughts? A lot of people are hesitant to ask a question like this, but I think it's often exactly the right move. Now, I think checking in like this is helpful for a few reasons. One is you may have gotten subconsciously attached to the vision you had in your head for what you were going to write, and it's good to get a reaction from someone else who has less of that attachment. Another point is that it's generally just hard to make yourself look at your work with fresh eyes as your goal is constantly changing, so bringing in another person is good. And then it's easy to get caught up in a virtue narrative when doing this work, saying to yourself, I'm thorough and rigorous and productive, I'm going to answer this question thoroughly and rigorously and do it on time. It's tempting, as I'll get to, to try to overcome hard situations with heroic effort. But if you check in with another person, they're more likely to ask questions like, well, how long does it usually take you to do this sort of thing, rather than can you make an incredible heroic effort here? And what do we think we can do and by when and is it worth it, rather than what would failure to do the thing you thought you could do say about you as a person? With early GiveWell, I got a huge amount of value from Ellie, who consistently wanted to do things far less thoroughly than I wanted to. I probably ended up doing things about three times as thoroughly as he wanted, and about a third as thoroughly, so about three times faster as I originally wanted. A nice compromise. 
These kinds of check-ins can be very vulnerable, especially when the topic is something like, I can't accomplish what we both said I would, and it can be hard to have the kind of relationship that makes them comfortable. It's best if the manager or peer being checked in with starts from a place of being non-judgmental, remembering the wicked nature of the problem, and not being attached to the original goals. I also recommend imagining an outsider interrupting you to comment on your work. I think this can get you some of those same benefits. Next subsection of impatience, outline-driven research. I recommend always working off a complete outline of what you are going to argue and how, which has ideally been reviewed by someone else, or your simulation of someone else, who said, sure, if you can defend each subpoint in the way you say you can, I'll find this valuable. To elaborate a bit, as soon as possible after you start learning about a topic, you can write an outline saying, I think I can show that A seems true using the best available evidence of type X, B seems true using the best available evidence of type Y, therefore conclusion C is true, or is the best available guess. Don't spend lots of time doing undirected learning before getting to this point. Then, as soon as your attempt to flesh out this outline is failing, prioritize going back to the outline, adjusting it, getting feedback, and being ready to go with a new argument. It's easy to say something like, I'm not actually confident in this point, I should investigate it, as I gave an example of in a previous piece. But I think it's better to interrupt yourself at that point, go back to the outline, redo it with a new plan, ask whether the whole new plan looks good once you make a change. Outlines don't need to be correct, they just need to be guesses, and they should be constantly changing. They're end-to-end plans for gathering presenting evidence, not finished products. Next subsection of impatience. Don't just leave a fix for later, duct tape it now. This tip comes from Ajaya. When you reach some difficult part of the argument that you haven't thought about enough yet, it's tempting to write to-do and figure you'll come back to it. But this is dangerous. It creates an assignment of unknown difficulty for your future self, putting them in the position of feeling obligated to fill in something they, that's future you, may not remember very well. It makes it harder to estimate how much time is remaining in the project. And putting a to-do like that poses the risk that you'll come back to fill it in, only to realize that you can't argue the subpoint as well as you thought, and that means you need to change a bunch of other stuff you wrote that relies on it. Instead, I suggest writing down the shortest, simplest version of the point you can, focusing on what you currently believe rather than doing a fresh investigation. When you read the piece over again later, if you're not noticing the need for more, then you don't need to do more. Next section, next vice, hubris. For a subsection of hubris, your take is valuable. A common experience with this kind of work is the two-week wrong turn, which I linked to a previous piece, where you realize just how much uncertainty there is in the question you're looking into, and how little you really know about it, and how easy it would be for someone to read your end product and say things like, so, I already knew all this, and there's nothing really new here, and this isn't a definitive take, it's a bunch of guesswork on a bunch of different topics that an expert would know infinitely more about, and things like that. This can be demoralizing to the point where it's hard to continue writing, especially once you put in a lot of time and have figured out most of what you want to say, but you're realizing that what you want to say is covered in uncertainty and caveats. It can sometimes be tempting to try to salvage the situation by furiously doing research to produce something more thorough and impressive. When someone, including myself, is in this type of situation, I often find myself saying the following sort of thing to them. If what you've got so far were trivial and worthless, you wouldn't have felt the pull to write this piece in the first place. Don't find support for what you think, just explain why you already think it. I think it can be useful to just take, my take on this topic is valuable, as an almost axiomatic backdrop. Once one's take has been developed a bit, that is. 
It doesn't mean more research isn't valuable, but it can shift one's attitude from furiously trying to find enough documentation that my take feels rigorous to doing whatever extra investigation is worth the extra time and otherwise just finishing up. Next subsection of hubris, your productivity is fine. One of the hardest things about working on wicked problems is that it's very hard to say how long a project is supposed to take. For example, in the first year of GiveWell, we felt that we absolutely had to launch our initial product by Thanksgiving 2007. Our initial product would be our giving recommendations for our initial five causes, saving lives in Africa, global poverty, U.S. early childhood care, U.S. education, U.S. job opportunities. But as we got close to the deadline, we were both pulling all-nighters and cutting huge amounts of our planned content. Things we had intended to write up or investigate were getting moved to questions for further investigation. And still, at some point, we had to give up on releasing all five causes and hope we would get out one in time. We did get one out, Saving Lives in Africa, up on December 6th, weeks after what we'd aimed for. We got another one, Global Poverty, up sometime not too long after that. And we had hoped to get the remaining causes out in January so we could move on to other things, but I believe it took us till May. Now, this deadline miss did not come from not working hard. It came from having no idea how much work was ahead of us. Working on wicked problems means navigating between not enough deadline and too much deadline. Now, not enough deadline means I think if one doesn't establish expectations for what will get done and by when, one will default to do everything in a way too much depth and take roughly forever to finish a project, and will miss out on a lot of important pressure to do things like cutting and reframing the work. But too much deadline means if one does set a deadline, it's likely that this is based on a completely inaccurate sense of what's possible. If one then makes it a point of personal pride to hit the deadline and sees a miss as a personal failing, this is a recipe for a shame spiral. Early in a project, I suggest treating a deadline mostly as a deadline to have a better deadline. Something like, according to my wildly uninformed guess at how long things should take, I should be done by July 1st. Hopefully by July 1st, I will be able to say something more specific. Like, I've gone through a third of my sub-questions, the remaining two-thirds would take until September 1st, which is too long, so I'm rescoping the project. At the point where one can really reliably say how much time is remaining, I think one is usually done with the hardest part of the project. Now, for these sorts of deadline-to-have-a-deadline things, I tend to make them comically aggressive. For example, I'm going to start writing this tomorrow and have it done after like 30 hours of work, while knowing that I'm actually several months from having my first draft but going in with the attitude that I'm basically done already and just writing it down will speed me up a lot by making me articulate some of the key premises. So I'm both setting absurd goals for what I can accomplish and preparing to completely let myself off the hook if I fail. Hubris. And then there's understanding procrastination and incubation. For almost anyone, and certainly for myself, working on wicked problems involves a lot of feeling stuck, not knowing what to do next, or worse, feeling like one knows what one is supposed to do next, but finding that the next step just feels painful or aversive or off, having a ton of trouble moving forward and likely procrastinating often a huge amount. I have more on this in my previous piece, The Wicked Problem Experience. In fact, early in the process of working on a wicked problem, I think it's often unrealistic to put in more than a few hours of solid work per day, and unhelpful to compare one's productivity to that of people doing better defined tasks, where the goals are clear and don't change by the hour. Working on wicked problems can often be a wild emotional roller coaster with lots of moments of self-loathing over being unable to focus or missing a deadline or having to heavily weaken the thing one was trying to say. It's a tough balance because I think one really does need to pressure oneself to produce, but especially once one has completed a few projects, I think it's feasible to be simultaneously failing to make progress 
and knowing that one is still broadly on track because failing to make progress is part of the process. I think it's sometimes productive to have a certain kind of arrogance, an attitude like, yes, I cleared the whole day to work on this project, and so far what I've done is played nine hours of video games, but the last five times I did something like this, I was in a broadly similar state, and then I got momentum and finished on time. I'm doing great. The balance to strike is feeling enough urgency to move through the whole procrastinate, produce, rethink process, while having a background sense that this is all expected and fine, that can prevent excessive personal shame and fear from the procrastination and rethink parts. Personally, I often draft a 15-page document by spending four hours failing to write the first paragraph, then one hour on the first paragraph, then one hour failing to continue, then one hour on the rest of the first page, then four hours for remaining 14 pages. So if someone tries to interrupt me during the first four hours when I've been doing absolutely nothing, I tell them I'm working. And that's true as far as I'm concerned. Next vice section, self-preservation. As noted above, working on wicked problems often involves long periods of very low output with self-imposed deadlines creeping up. This sometimes leads people to try to make up for lost time with a heroic effort at superhuman productivity and try to handle the hardest parts of a project by just working that much harder. I'm basically totally against this. Here's an analogy I sometimes use. Question, when Superman shows up to save the day and realizes his rival is loaded with kryptonite, how should he respond? What's the best, most virtuous thing he can do in that situation? Answer, fly away as fast as he can, optionally shrieking in terror and letting all the onlookers say, wow, what a coward. This is a terrible time to be brave. There are so many things Superman can do to be helpful in the world. The single worst thing he can do is go where he won't succeed. If the project is taking too long, it might be because it was impossible to set a schedule for in the first place, and trying to finish it off at a superhuman pace could easily just leave you exhausted, demoralized, and still not close to done. Additionally, the next task sometimes seems scary because it's actually a bad idea or it's impossible, and it needs to be rethought. I generally advise people working on wicked problems to aim for jogging rather than sprinting, a metaphor I like because it emphasizes that this is fully consistent with trying to finish as fast as possible. In particular, I prefer the goal of make a bit of progress, or make at least a bit of progress on 95% of days and 100% of weeks, to the goal of make so much progress today that it makes up for all my wasted past days. Now, the goal of making at least a bit of progress almost all the time is not easy. I think aiming for it requires a lot of interrupting oneself to make sure one isn't spiraling or going down an unproductive rabbit hole, rather than a lot of trying to pedal to the metal, which can run right into those exact problems. Subsection, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a schmo. This section is particularly targeted at effective altruists who feel compelled to squeeze every ounce of productivity out of themselves that they can, for moral reasons and not just personal pride. I think this attitude is dangerous because of the way it leads people to set unrealistic and unsustainable expectations for themselves. My take is that whenever you catch yourself planning on being a hero, you should just stop. If we're going to save the world, we're going to do it by being schmoes. That is, you should plan on being about as focused, productive, and virtuous as people doing similar work on other topics. Should plan on working a normal number of hours each day, plan on often getting distracted and mucking around, plan on taking as much vacation as other high productivity people, which is a lot, plan on having as much going on outside work as other high productivity people, which is a lot, etc. This is also a standard to hold oneself to. You should try not to lose productivity over things like guilt spirals that other people doing similar work often don't suffer from. 
If effective altruists are going to have outsized impact on the world, I think it will be mostly thanks to the unusual questions they're asking and the unusual goals they're interested in, not generic dedication, productivity, and virtue that is unusual. I model myself as basically like a hedge fund guy, but doing more valuable stuff, not as a being capable of exceptional output or exceptional sacrifice. Final section, be virtuous first. I don't think you're going to get very far with the vices from this piece alone. If you are not balancing them with the virtues of open-mindedness, self-criticality, and doing the hard work to understand things, it's easy to just lazily write down some belief you have, cite a bit of evidence that you haven't looked at carefully or considered the best counterarguments to, and hit publish. I think that is what the vast majority of people quote-unquote investigating important questions are doing, and if I were writing tips for the average person in the world, I'd have a very different emphasis. For forming opinions and writing useful pieces about important topics, I think the first hurdle to clear is being determined to examine the strongest parts of both sides of an argument, understand them in detail and with minimal trust, and write what you're finding with reasoning transparency, which is something I link to. All of this is much easier said than done, but in my experience, many of the people who are strongest in these virtues veer too far in the virtuous direction and end up punishing themselves for missing unrealistic self-imposed deadlines on impossible self-imposed assignments. This piece has tried to give a feel for when and how to pull back, skip steps, and go easy on oneself to make incremental progress on intimidating questions.